The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. One of the most interesting things about trying to understand innovation and growth in this region is trying to balance out a fixation on startups that a lot of people seem to have with the large businesses and the various larger non-governmental organizations that seem to drive an awful lot of innovation in the region. How do you explain that? I have three guests in the studio with me today who are well-known and well-engaged in the entrepreneurial innovation community, and we're going to talk about what is the secret sauce for this region. It's actually kind of surprising. With me here is Gene Rickers, a well-known investor and mentor in our D.C. region economy. Gene, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Ed Barrientos, well-known angel investor and entrepreneur and currently the CEO of Brazen Technologies. Ed? Happy to be here. And we're happy to have you. And our third guest is Mark Walsh, who everybody knows, and if they don't, they should. And he's the managing partner of Ruxton Ventures. Mark, great to have you. A pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Well, Recently, uh, the four of us were together and trying to, with some other folks, trying to get our heads around what's really driving this region. And, and we had kind of a eureka moment. Mark, I'll turn to you. It, it may be you that first had that eye-like experience, but what, what defines this region? What, what should we be talking about? Well, I think you mentioned it in your opening, Jonathan, which is we're all sort of besotted and kind of drunk with this idea of, oh, startup, startup, startup. And so many young men and women coming out of college or graduate school feel that they have to sort of be part of a startup or start a company. And in fact, I would argue, and I think uh, my colleagues here today and many in the region would argue that you, you really see a lot more vitality in intrapreneurship, where a good idea that happens inside a larger company with scale can get traction, can get management expertise, can get funding, can get access to markets at a way faster pace than a cold crank startup that's trying to raise, you know, 500 grand in an angel round. And there's a rich history here in D.C. of that happening, uh, where people get ideas that germinate and generate vitality within a larger entity. Sometimes they stay within the, the entity, and then sometimes they'll leave and, and basically start that idea after seeing how it can scale up inside the, uh, inside the larger arena. And I think we don't get enough credit, bluntly, as a market versus the Valley and other places like that for having that kind of sort of rich, fertile ground for entrepreneurial activity. How would you guys define an entrepreneurship? What you see inside a lot of large companies, successful large companies, is people taking the initiative and being innovative and taking risks inside companies. I think that companies that encourage risk-taking and are tolerant of risk-taking and don't cut the heads off of, of those who take risks and sometimes fail uh, can deliver new products to market reach new, uh, and reach new markets and can really change their companies and drive greater growth in companies that might otherwise be stagnant. And that's what we're seeing here. And that's what we've seen here for a couple of generations, really. And it's somewhat invisible because, you know, as Jonathan said, the, the press is really covering the startups and the exciting uh, newer companies. But really, there's a lot of innovation occurring in, inside larger companies here. I think one of the other things that's interesting is the talent pool. So if you think back, entrepreneurship as a academic interest, if you will, in universities began to really rise maybe 10, 15, maybe as far back as 20 years ago. 
So the tools that were beginning to be used within the startup ecosystem were beginning to make their way into academics, into universities, into MBA programs and other things. So you're seeing a, a, a group, a generation, if you will, perhaps it's the millennials, perhaps it's the end of the Gen Xers that are taking a lot of that awareness of entrepreneurial tools, entrepreneurial thinking, and are starting to get into those management positions and companies. So I think it, it's, there's a greater awareness of entrepreneurial thinking, even in the corporate world. So I think, I think that, that's a key ingredient. A, a lot of folks have tried over the, I'll say, decades to bring more of that entrepreneurial uh, spirit inside of companies. But I think the, the talent pool wasn't ready. I think that change today in, in generations, in, in large part, are making that a little bit more real, a little more feasible. You know, it is interesting to me when I look at the history of lean startup methodology, the idea of, of customer discovery and iteration, you know, one of the largest proponents of it is Eric Ries out in, the, out in California. And his whole point is this is actually a methodology that should be used in larger companies. That was, you know, his books are all about larger companies. Steve Blank uh, in, at Stanford tried to adapt and adapt it to startups. But really – the whole point of lean startup and iteration was to, to be in large businesses. Why is that obscure, do you think? I think all of us may have spent our time in large companies. I had a fabulous, short but glorious experience in General Electric, uh, which I worked for for a short period of time. But I think the collision that I saw, and I think you continue to see, is a sense of urgency. That a lot of times in big companies, you, you lose that sense of urgency because they have they have some momentum <clears throat> in the markets they're in. They have some legacy behavior. And it's just really hard to shove the sense of urgency that a true entrepreneur in a startup needs. Um, but if you can blend that feeling of urgency into a corporate environment, you can really make a lot of traction. And to be perfectly blunt, and I love General Electric and I had a fabulous experience there, you know, Jack Welch, who was the CEO when I was there, it was it was difficult for him to see urgency in some of his arenas. He talked about it a lot with boundarylessness and all the stuff that we all remember, but it was difficult to see the sense of urgency. And to reach back to something Gene said a moment ago, it was about risk. And famously, one of the people on my team said the problem with GE is if you start something that makes sense and it's right for the company and it fails, you're fired. If you start something that's that's right and risky and, and is right for the company and it works, you get a plaque. So this risk-reward ratio is out of whack, and you see that a lot in larger companies. Is that all fundamentally the way you look at it? Because I've heard this a lot. and In fact, I read it relatively recently. Somebody at, I think it was PitchBook, you know, wrote an insight and said entrepreneurship doesn't make any sense because there's no upside. I'm having a hard time with that because in my experience, a lot of entrepreneurial workers, a lot of entrepreneurial people here in town work in the federal government or NGOs or social ventures or even for-profit businesses. There's something motivating them other than, than making money, isn't there? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there is a lot of other intrinsic motivations beyond just making money. And uh, I think Washington is a great example of that. And, and there are people doing great work here uh, in spite of various comments people might make about the government. There are really good people doing good things in the government and, and around the government and, and in government contractors are people doing amazingly innovative things to, to, to deliver, you know, value to the citizens of the country. Um, and, and they're doing it, you know, sometimes in challenging environments, but I think a lot of it is about creating an environment where risk taking is tolerated to, to, to Mark's point. And I think companies, are figuring out how to do that, um, you know, f figuring out how to be tolerant of failure and, and to allow people to do that. And you have to figure out 
how to do that. If you're running a nuclear reactor, you don't have a high tolerance for risk. You don't have a high tolerance for innovation. You have to have a lot of procedures for making changes uh, to, to reduce risk. If you are innovating around enterprise software, you can have a process that allows lots of innovation because maybe the, the, the cost of failure around small changes is very low. So you have to adjust to what your customers need and what your customers can tolerate in terms of small failures along the way as you move forward in markets. So it's, it, you have to adjust to the environment. Good companies understand that. You know, Boeing had a computer services business for a long time and they ran that very differently. You know, the the you know the the process changes to change a bolt in an aircraft. That decision was very different than making a process change in the in the computer services business, as it should be. You know, Boeing's a great example because if you look at what's happened with the uh, the seven thirty seven Max, in some ways they they did operate with more ambiguity or, or more forward uh, movement than they have in, in prior generations of aircraft, and it's harmed them. Good example. Yeah. So it's risk. And what else, what else is it? It's not just well, risk, though. I, I think if you think of entrepreneurship, I, I always think of three dials, if you will. On, on, you know, one dial is inventiveness, innovation, people that are just creative, that can synthesize a whole range of things and see an opportunity. So that's one dial, getting the right people involved. Second dial is what you know, both, both Gene and Mark have already mentioned. What's the upside? What's the reward? And the third one is what's the price for failure, right? And and what happens is these dials sort of naturally in the wild, if you will, for entrepreneurships, they get they get moved at certain places and magic happens and a, and a startup emerges. Inside of a larger organization, you still have those dials, right? You've got to have the right people. You have to have creative people and innovative people that want to do this. You, you, you have to have some kind, I think Mark mentioned, some kind of a reward system, some, some kind of an upside for them. It may be recognition. It may be a whole range of rewards. And you have to be able to dial up and down the price for failure. You know, it, 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 you still have those elements, those variables involved. And it's really, really hard. I, I, I want to say that getting it right is difficult. If you look at companies that have written about their – entrepreneurial initiatives inside their company. Some have been incredibly successful. I think of Gore. Gore is an example that often comes to mind. They have made it, you know, from the top down, from the CEO down, it is a strategic initiative to bring that in. And it almost has to be, to be able to have management backing the, the, the movement of those dials. Without that, I don't believe that can just magically happen inside of companies. It seems to me that we first of all have to change the definition. What we're, what you and I or all of us are talking about is what I would describe as entrepreneurial behavior. We in town and around the country use the word entrepreneurship to describe those behaviors and then have tied entrepreneurship with business formation, thereby completely creating a blind spot where what really we're all care about is how do you get innovators in a position where they can drive change in an organization? I think that's spot on. And I would argue, I don't think we chronicle how this happens as well as we should. I know we've had some conversations in your new your new status at, uh, at, at Marymount is it perhaps a wonderful uh, platform to, pr- to pursue this, but I don't think we chronicle and celebrate when it's happened. I mean, there are so many stories, large, medium, and small, 
where exactly what we're talking about on this show have happened. I keep reminding people, Paul Canavino at IBM, left IBM headquarters in Armagh and moved to Florida to start the PC division. And I know many of your listeners might not remember this, but IBM's validation of the PC as an entity completely really – I think it completely mm -hmm. made the market happen. Absolutely. No disrespect to Apple and Steve and all that. But, but IBM's commitment to that specific device and what that would mean to our lives happened in, in a big-time way. But Canavino split because he knew – our monks, IBM's HQ, would drag him down. They said, sure, go on. It's an amazing story. And that happened yeah. in one of the most legendarily siloed, really slow-moving organization. So there's stories like that all over the place. And a lot of them happen right here in Zip Code starting in two. When we come back after the break, I'm going to ask you to share some of your personal stories because I think all of us share, we all have experienced entrepreneurship as part of our careers. We're going to talk about that when we come back with Gene Rickers, Ed Barrientos, and Mark Walsh. So what's working to watch an extra? We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. And we're back on this What's Working in Washington Extra, talking about the secret sauce fair region, entrepreneurship. I'm here with Gene Rickers, well-known investor and mentor for many in the D.C. region. Eberantos, a known angel investor and also currently the CEO of Brazen Technologies. And Mark Walsh, managing partner of Ruxton Ventures. I teased it before the break. We've all got stories. Gene, I'll turn to you. Share, us, share with us one of your entrepreneurship examples from your own career. Like a lot of people, before I got involved in entrepreneurial companies, I worked in a larger company. And I think, frankly, it's critical to have that kind of experience before you go off and, and try to start a business. In my case, I worked for a larger software company. And what I witnessed there was a, a particular entrepreneurial, or in, in this case, entrepreneurial uh, executive who took one idea and ran with it and came up with a unique product idea inside the business. And ultimately, in the course of his efforts, that idea became the, the foundation of the entire company. The company was, over time, really struggling with its direction. And his one idea really subsumed the entire company, and, and uh, the whole company wound up getting behind his one idea, which in the early days was five or 10% of the revenues. And uh, over the next five years, it became 100% of the revenues. So it really saved the company and changed the direction and ultimately produced a very successful company. So it can really make a difference. I give that guy a lot of credit for what he did. And if I remember correctly, that guy you mentioned went off and became an angel investor and helped start companies like eBay and AOL and, and other companies. And you went off to become a VC. And so, right? I mean, that, that formative experience created a lot of There's a lot of behavior that came out of that, yes. Ed, I know that your career probably has a similar arc, doesn't it? It does. Well, I, I was smiling as, as Mark was, I think he gave the example of IBM. You know, I started my career actually with IBM. And I, as I, right out of school, I went into a group called ASIS, which was the academic uh, focused uh, division of, of IBM, trying to figure out, can we sell into universities these new things called PCs? This was at the very beginning uh, of the PC era. 
And we, because IBM sold the big iron, they sold the big giant mainframes, they didn't really pay that much attention to the PCs at that time. They were seen more or less as sort of a toy. What, what was interesting about our small office actually based right here in, in the DC area was we had a lot of latitude to go and figure out how we were gonna sell to students PCs that were at the time priced at $3,000, you know, or, or somewhere around that. We came up with an idea, and it actually, we're, we're in Chevy Chase now, right? It was Chevy Chase Bank, if I remember right. We had this idea, hey, why don't we let students finance their PCs? And we worked with the bank. They came up with a, a, a real simple application, and voila, we started selling to students. That program ended up selling more PCs than anywhere else in the country because we went through all the schools on the East Coast and basically used that model, sold tens of thousands of PCs using that approach. So at that time, because we were not core to IBM, it, PCs were new, growing, not significant amount of revenue, we had that latitude. That's where some of this entrepreneurship can really take hold. It's interesting to me, and all three of you are investors as am I, that if you look at the overall successful exit rate, it's it's founders that are in their 40s. It's you know we talk about the outliers, the 20 year olds that create uh, the the unicorns, but the probabilities are you're more likely to be successful as an, an older entrepreneur. And those are people that learn how to be entrepreneurial business starters in large companies. I got to ask Ed though. Ed, thanks for helping. Uh, balloon student <laughs> with program. Clearly a super Way to go, Way to go I was ahead of my time. Mark, I was ahead of my time. Answer the question, Mr. Walsh. <laughs> how, how was the reward structure, how did IBM reward this program, or did they? You, you know, what was really interesting, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that up, is that the, the salespeople, which I was one of them, actually got commissions on a $3,000 computer. That drove us to find how do we sell you know, $3,000 or a 10% commission or whatever it was, was significant yeah. carrot. Yeah. And we, it drove us to find a way. How do we sell a whole bunch of these things? So, you know, I, I think that freedom to do that, any other division within IBM would have never been able to do some of these things. So that reward was strong. It forced us to really figure out how to do it. All right, Walsh, you, you took over the show for a moment. Sorry. You came to mind, but now you're not going to be able to dodge this question. We're well, talking, it, oh, no, no. We, we talked about entrepreneurial behavior. Can you teach people how to be entrepreneurial? Some say you can learn to ride a bike by reading a book, but you learn how to fall off a bike by trying to ride a bike, right? So the idea of learning a whole bunch of features and structures and economics and all of the, all of the elements of startup or even entrepreneurial behavior can happen in an educational environment. But I think the, the experiential and often the failed experiential element is, is probably as important as all of the, quote, book learning. So I think there's always going to be a yin-yang going on in teaching it and then experiencing it. That's sort, of, that's sort of point number one. Point number two is I happen to think that very few entrepreneurial efforts at universities, large and small, and I'm talking the West Coast, East Coast, Northeast, whatever, very few of them think the word intra is a cool word. So I think that differentiating the behavior from entrepreneurship to entrepreneurship is going to be a really kind of a moment in in higher ed uh, moving forward. And I know that you you guys uh, are are really kind of pushing the um, pushing the uh, envelope a little bit on this. And I think la the third point and, and the final point is that I I don't think entrepreneurship is sexy enough yet. And I think so. It's going to be kind of a media moment as well, where where much like this conversation the three of us are having with you. Is we're, we're talking about kind of cool stories where f interesting stuff happened. I mean, look at look at Gene's point. 
that that and the AOL experience has spawned people. I mean, that's one. And MCI, I mean, remember MCI with their online, they've spawned entrepreneurs and they spawned funding of entrepreneurs whose overall impact is fabulous compared to the actual intrapreneurial event. So I think there's going to need to be some media uh, coverage that makes entrepreneurship as interesting and as sexy and as sort of celebrated as some of these millennial unicorns that we celebrate now. I would argue as an educator that you can't teach somebody how to be entrepreneurial, but most people have entrepreneurial characteristics. You know, they they have communication skills, they have a desire for autonomy, they they have a tolerance for ambiguity, right? It's just a question of helping people self-identify and develop these these coping skills, it seems to me. Yeah, if I could add to this, I think, you know, when I think about what can be taught and is being taught in universities now versus what was taught when I went to school, you know, there's real skills that are being taught that are useful in larger companies and in, in entrepreneurial businesses, but really can be applied in entrepreneurial efforts. You know, I'm thinking of things like teamwork. You know, universities are emphasizing working in teams, you know, related to that collaboration. Um, also, how to find and develop creativity. You know, there are tools, there are processes to bring out creativity. Um, and, and emphasis on lifelong learning. You know, nobody really talked about that when I was in college. I, thank God I adopted it as a behavior, and we all did, but mm -hmm. that's a really important attribute. Leadership skills. Nobody taught that then. People teach that now. And project management. Those are all traits that contribute to successful entrepreneurship. Can I, I'm, I, that, I think that's a great list, by the way. I want to add one more to it. I think he it. prepared that. You think? <laughs> I do. He, he always prepares. <laughs> no, he does. But I would add one, which is communication. Mm. So you asked great Steve one. Case, one of the great skills he learned before he joined quantum computing, which became AOL with some, some other folks we know. He worked at Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble's uh, rigid uh, demand that you can make everything onto a one-page memo. Whatever idea you have, whatever new product you want to launch, whatever, at Procter & Gamble, if you can't put it on a one-page memo, then it ain't real, right? And Steve often, to this day, will often credit Procter & Gamble, fresh out of Williams College, as a place where he learned to, to uh, crisply and in a, with a sense of urgency communicate what he wanted to do at P&G, which I think became a key port point of when he started at Quantum, raising money and growing the company. So communications, I would add, is another skill that entrepreneurs need to know, too. That's a great point. You know, as we think about this, as I was thinking about this conversation we're having, it triggers another thought, which is there's so much focus right now with local employers, you know, whether it's Amazon, Cap One, uh, and others. They're talking about soft skills. They talk about the, we need soft skills, we need people with soft skills and technical skills. I think what they're really saying is they need people that are good entrepreneurs. Well, you know, my my business is is very much focused on on talent acquisition recruiting. So, you know, I, I hear a lot about this particular issue. How do you attract people with these skills? I, I think I'm going to come back to a comment I made earlier, which is, can you teach this? I think there are some things that are innate. It's it's sort of like an athlete. You know, you, you can definitely teach anybody how to play ball. Uh, you're not going to necessarily create a world-class champion. That's one in a million. But you're going to have somebody that really loves to play ball and can play ball and do and stay healthy and so forth. So, you know, there there is the need to identify, I believe, and and attract on the part of organizations that inventive skill set. Those people that have the skills that 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 lend themselves nicely to entrepreneurship. There are people that are that that can learn all the skills, they can learn all the tools, they can do this, but 
that innate willingness to take the chances to maybe bet on something is difficult. That's where I would say that's probably not what you can teach, but you can teach a lot around that. It almost seems to me as we as we tie this up that this really gets to the startup community as well because ultimately startups need people to execute the founder's vision. Well, I mean, if you're if you're an angel investor, of which I think everybody in the room is, or a VC partner, or a private equity partner, if you're scaling up or whatever, I would argue that you will need to cherish and value an entrepreneurial experience, be it failure or success, as much as you might want to see that CEO or that founder have an entrepreneurial experience that was failed, a failure or a success. I mean, you know, the old saw was, hey, I'm never going to invest in somebody that didn't have a big failure in their past, right? That, that's you, you want that stripe as an investor. But I think having a, I shouldn't say failed, but, but having a less than robust entrepreneurial experience is as educational. I mean, go back to the list Gene said earlier. If you look at that list, I think if you, if you check that list off as an entrepreneur, you tried, it was a good idea. If it failed for reasons that are outside of your control, I think you're as valuable as a CEO going forward to, to a VC. I would love to talk with you more, and I bet we'll have further conversations about this point. It was great having you on What's Working in Washington today. Gene Rickers, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Ed Barrientos, as always, thank you. Thank you. Great conversation. And Mark Walsh, notwithstanding you trying to take over the show, it was great having you, too. Thanks. I can't guys. help myself. See you next time on What's Working in Washington. And now, What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. When I think of a Marine, I think of a devil dog, a leatherneck, a rifleman. What I don't think of is knowledge warrior. But in fact, a modern Marine is a knowledge warrior. They bring data and records to the battlefield in order to be more effective. But this has created a problem because the Marines are now using so much data, creating so many records, that we had no way of dealing with this material as we were leaving Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is precisely the problem a GS-14 named Kim and her deputy named Elena had to face. They really knew that this was too much data to handle by hand. It couldn't be dealt with. So they realized they needed to go to industry. The problem was industry didn't have any technology available that could sort through the billions of documents, organizing it, categorizing it, and cleaning it. So they resolved to have a bake-off. They figured if they put the best industry competitors up against one another, that they would be able to pressure them into developing these technologies essentially free to the Marine Corps. That is precisely what they went off and did. So they built this bake-off. They said, everybody's going to come in one day, winner takes all, and we're going to see who can do what, where, when, and how. The industry partners came in, and one thing became clear. There was one standout technology called file analysis. And what file analysis ultimately enabled the Marine Corps to do was to look at these billions of files in a matter of days and hours rather than years and decades, which ultimately solved the problem. For me, this is the story of how two people took a risk. They went out on a limb. They pushed industry into developing the solution they needed. And ultimately, they had success. That was What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. And of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sayreforth Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.